This is Duke University. Uh, 
debt and equity investments in natural resource-based companies, so we're sort of an environmental venture capital fund with a lower return expectation than, than SJF ventures had. But before that, I um, I started out as a community organizer, which <laughs> gives you lots of opportunities in this country. <laughs> um, hopefully. And, uh, uh, got interested in, in job creation through that. I was working with a lot of low-income neighborhoods in Charlotte and came to see that the thing that people most needed were good jobs. I had interest in job creation. Went back to business school, worked for the convention company for a while. Um, and then uh, got back, sort of got back involved with um, work that, that had more of a social mission to it. So I, I ran a nonprofit for a dozen years or so that was based here in Durham called Real Enterprises. And we were a social enterprise without without knowing it. We raised money from foundations, Ford and DeWitt Wallace, and lots of <clears throat> sort of traditional charitable supporters. But we also sold curriculum, and we also had a training program. And those grew to become about 30 to 40 percent of our of our total revenue. And we really had no idea, even though um, that we were led by a, hopefully a, a well-minted MBA, we really had no idea how to price um, those products, how to, how to account for them, how to, how to cost them out, how to make sure that they grew and that we, we were able to, to um, increase our portion of our revenue. So um, sort, of back, sort of back into it as, a, as, a, um, as an entrepreneur and um, and then I served on the board of a couple of, of organizations, or the organization called SunShares here in, in Durham that was a solar company and a um, and the, the curbside recycling program in Durham. And I currently serve on the board of Transfair, which is a, a certifying agency for fair trade commodity products in the, in the, um, in the U.S. So um, those are, are both have both been social enterprises. So I've served on both sides of the fence. Um, I'm not a Theoretician or a theory person, I'm much more of a practitioner. So um, I'm happy to kind of answer questions about the, the practice side of it and to wonder my way through any theory questions you have. So, um, so the I, to me the the crux of social enterprise is uh, is how do you make a profit and do something worthwhile. In the, in the world as defined by you, the entrepreneur. So social enterprises focus on lots and lots of different different topics, different problems, malaria in the, in the third world, um, blindness, eye care, um, you name it. Someone has, someone has developed an enterprise around it and is, is working on that on that topic. Here in the United States, um, we're, we're used to and know about social enterprises for a long time really without knowing about them. The Girl Scouts sell cookies and raise a tremendous amount of money yeah. for, their, for their program in that way. Um, and lots of nonprofits have turned more and more to, to uh, earn income strategies as well. And my, my contention is that uh, not only do we need to worry about the social aspects in the, in the world, how we do it.
How's that? Good. Good. Um, so we want to we find ways to have a capitalist system, as Bill Gates here said, um, serve not just wealthier people, does a great job of doing that in his, in his estimation, but how about poorer people as well? And, and then I would add, what about the environment? We, we've got um, more, more and more severe environmental problems that need addressing, and people in this room who are going to be starting ventures and, and addressing all kinds of, of challenges, it'd be great to have you um, addressing those issues as well. So there, you can think about these enterprises as having a twin mission, or what we call a North, uh, National Capital Investment Fund, uh, a triple bottom line. So you can be both a social, you can have a, a social impact, you can have environmental impact, and you can work on um, on the, the premise that you're going to be a sustainable, profit-making or break-even organization. So that's that's really what um, drives me is to find a way to really make meaning of the MBA training that I had and the, um, and the work that I've done to to try to. Uh, Figure out a way to make the world a better place. And as I said, that's that's different for everybody. So what are the what do these organizations look like? Um, let me just ask. Uh, uh, well, yeah. Let me just ask now. Who who has a um, who would like to throw out an example of a social enterprise in your at least in your estimation? And we'll see how it matches up against these these different definitions. Somebody got one. I want. Yeah. Charity investment partners. Okay. All right. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about them? Sure. So yeah. they're a brownfield private equity fund, and so they invest in environmentally impacted land. They clean it up and then they sell it And they're very um, focused on investing in urban areas and um, making sure that their investments are sustainable and they build communities and focus on job creation. Great. They've also created a foundation that, sure. yeah. that I believe some of their profits go to, and that's a that's a structure you often see in the social enterprise world. So, um, and we'll we'll come back to that. Thank you. That's great. So, um, what do these organizations look like? Well, they either have a social or environmental purpose. We talked about that. Um, this is a definition from the UK from the Fund called Bridges Community Ventures, and they talked about um, earning more than seventy five percent of your revenue from. Um, from trading or from income strategies. So that, that would be one way to think about, about social enterprises. Or, and those would be their nonprofit organizations, or they can be for-profit businesses that are, that are mission-driven. And this is sort of the important thing, that their, the mission compromises in some way their ability to, um, to make a profit or to get finance. So they actually are, are defining social enterprises in terms of their what they aren't, which is able to get um, able to get financing to expand, and maybe not able to be as profitable as, as um, a traditional organization might be. These are from some folks you probably um, will recognize: Greg Dees and Beth Anderson here at, at Duke, who have focused on um, for-profit social ventures for the most part. And they talk about uh, the fact that social ventures have owners. They're um, uh, owners who have a formal right to control the corporation, who are, who are uh, entitled to some of the some of the earnings, and they talk about how a, a social venture, a for-profit social venture, um, serves a social purpose, 
that it has a commitment to creating value for a community or a society rather than just for the owner. So there's this, this concept of wealth creation or value creation outside of the, the ownership it's of the corporation itself. And then this is um, a quote from a um, document called Nothing Venture, Nothing Gain, which has just uh, come out recently and sort of backs up the creation of a fund called Good Capital, which is trying to create a venture capital fund that will fund with equity or equity-like uh, products, both nonprofits and for-profits. And it's a, it's a tall order. Um, but they talk about the fact that there is this premium for doing good. Um, so not only is there a is there a cost to doing good as um, whoops. So um, we're talking up here about compromising return. They're talking about a premium for doing good. And if you read the sentence, it actually sounds like they're saying the same thing, that there's a cost to doing good. Um, so I think this is sort of a Freudian slip, but I think it was a good one. Um, because I think there can be a premium for doing good. That companies that integrate a social mission or environment, environmental mission may actually do better in the marketplace. So um, I think that's, a, that's a, an interesting um, juxtaposition there. Um, so let's look at, so Cherokee Investment Partners, um, what would you say was uh, the intent of Cherokee Investment Partners? What, what, was, the, what was the thinking behind the, the founder? Well, um, the founder has, he is a lawyer by trade, he also has an environmental background. So his initial um, mission was to improve or, I guess, focus on the environmental Realize that they could invest in environmental assets and make a decent return, then that's when the project came up. Would you say that he set it up primarily for environmental reasons or for profit making? You know, I think I think his heart is, is certainly. I mean, I know him very well, so I think that um, his his focus is environmental, but he recognized that in order for him to do good environmental work, there had to be some local possibility. So, so this, the question of um, again, thanks. The question of intent is really, I think, is really important here. And these are enterprises where, where you sort of know it, you know it when you see it. And I think in this instance, um, the founder of Cherokee, I would agree with you. Um, you know, really has a strong environmental mission. Really wanted to do something good in the world. Just happen to figure out a way to do it uh, and make millions and millions of dollars. So um, he's been very lucky to find a, um, a synergistic kind of relationship between the mission of his organization and the ability to be, to be profitable. How about another one? What's a, what about uh, GE, for example? GE is doing a lot with environmental uh, work with their multiple imagination, imagination um, initiative. Would you consider them a social? Social venture? Somebody want to argue yes or no? You're shaking your head, why not? Oh, I don't. I don't think they were started with, it started with that mission. I think they incorporated it really well into their strategy. Um, it's more than just, they say they're doing good things, but it's more of a business. So they sort of started out as a, a for profit venture, yep. Yeah. And now they, um, a, if you're familiar with the concept of greenwashing, I think some people would, would accuse GE of greenwashing 
And on the other hand, they're doing, you know, they've decided to put lots and lots of uh, resources and attention into developing a strong environmental products and practice. And uh, so it's a, it's a little bit of a gray area. But I think, again, the intent there originally was to, to be a for-profit making enterprise. And what's interesting about GE, if you think back to the, who was the, who was the, the founder or the instigator for GE? Thomas Edison. So my guess is Thomas Edison didn't start out wanting to make a profit. He probably started out wanting to make the world a better place with electricity and light bulbs. So uh, interesting to, to take a look at that. So just in terms of a, a working definition um, that I use, and we got in an argument at Columbia the other night about whether this really covers the waterfront. Um, and I'm open to uh, obviously have new revisions, but. Um, any, or, any organization that seeks to generate a substantial part of its revenue from income generating activities, so not just charitable activities if you're a nonprofit, um, and it's, it's concurrently and it's explicitly working to achieve some social or environmental purpose or some positive benefit. Um, so I think that, that throws a pretty broad blanket um, and you can look at lots of different organizations or enterprises that way. Um, the, we get an argument about the other day. I think we got an argument about this whole question of intent. I mean, they, they convinced me, the students convinced me, that the intent, the sort of DNA, the, the, the intrinsic uh, mission of the organization is, is one place to look for whether something is a, is a social enterprise. Yeah, I wonder if it's helpful to almost look at it from the reverse, because if, if the intent is to do them concurrently, and if they get into it and find out they can't achieve a social mission, and if it's truly a social venture, perhaps shouldn't they be willing to pack up and go home and do something else? Right? And if it's not just about making money, if it's about making social impact, it would seem that perhaps the founders would be dissatisfied with any other option. I guess one of my questions is when the venture capital firm makes an investment in the venture, do they rely on this definition or restrict this definition? What's the reason? Is it like you were saying, you've got these two poles in the right what hold hold that hold that question. That's a, that's a really good question, and um, we're going to talk about what sort of the range of different options are. And we'll, we'll talk about some how, how some of these different ones are addressing. Okay, so um, I mentioned that, that. Well, what's what's interesting to me is um, and what I've been focusing on is our expansion enterprises and. One reason for that is that you know, it's always hard to raise money. There's no question that it's not easy to, to raise capital whether you're starting out and whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit. Um, but it's a, it, I would argue it's a little bit easier to raise startup capital and um, more difficult to raise expansion capital. So what, I've, what I have um, been interested in is how do you expand, how do you go to scale, how do you take a good idea that may have been piloted somewhere and, and turn it into something that's Larger and really has a big impact. So, just some some um, characteristics of a of a startup. Um, the nice thing about a startup is, you know, it's the idea. You've got this wonderful idea you can share with um, with potential funders. You've got no track record, um, which on the one hand can be sort of a bad thing. On the other hand, you haven't made any mistakes yet. So you're, um, you have the opportunity to to look out into the future and, and paint a rosy picture. You're testing an idea. You've got an unlimited market, 
So you're looking at, um, you know, the sky is sort of the limit when you're starting out with, a, with an enterprise. What you need typically is a really inspiring entrepreneur, somebody who can paint the vision and get people excited about it. Um, it's typically finance by what we call early stage, early stage capital. On the for-profit side, those would be angel investors who are high net worth individuals. On the nonprofit side, it usually are foundations and sometimes individuals, but usually foundations that have a particular interest in, in a um, in the area that the the venture is working in. And you're sort of expected to lose money. It's okay to lose money in the beginning um, because you've got to ramp up, you've got to build overhead, you've got to build systems, you've got to design the product. Um, and in some funny way, the cash kind of comes before the business comes. So you've got this money, and you really haven't, you really haven't developed uh, the enterprise yet. So, so the question is, when you get to the expansion stage, what are the what are the differences? Well, um, now you've got two things that have to sort of sort of share the stage. You've got an idea, but you've also got an enterprise. Um, you have a business that you need to you need to grow, not just an idea or a, a mission to fulfill. You've made some successes. You've also made some mistakes. So you've got to explain those, and you have a track record now. You've got um, you've got something for funders to look back at. You're not just testing an idea. You're trying to go to scale. In the for-profit sector, you might talk about that as um, reaching a bigger market or taking market share. In the nonprofit sector, it's typically typically talked about as going to scale, replicating so that you can do what you do in in uh, one small place, do it everywhere, do it across the country, or do it. In a region, rather than having an unlimited market, you've got um, you're more than likely you're beginning to see some competition. If you've had a good idea, other people are probably trying to, to borrow it or do something with it, and uh, you're you're more and more focusing on a, on a niche in the market. There are very few companies like um, Microsoft which are able to sort of create a market and dominate it the way they the way they have. Most most um, companies have a more of a tougher road to hoe, if you will. And instead of needing an inspiring entrepreneur, you need a management team. You've got a company to run, and you need people who are good at the vision and the mission, who know a lot about selling books or a lot about malaria, but you also need somebody who can keep track of, <coughs> keep track of the books, who can, who can be in charge of the marketing program, who can run the, run the operations while the inspiring entrepreneur is out inspiring people. Someone's got to be home kind of minding the shop. Different, um, differently, and more and more, you're, you need to be financed by earned income, outside equity, and, and debt. We're going to talk a little bit about equity and debt. And you all know a fair amount about that, um, but that's different, different sources of money. And um, it's not okay anymore to be losing money hand over fist. Now you're expected to begin to move sort of towards self-sufficiency, and the business often comes before the cash. So if you want to replicate and you want to open up a new office, um, you've, got to, you've got to make some expenditures. You've got to put some cash out before you're going to be able to do business in that, in that new area. You might have to hire salespeople. You might have to open offices and, and buy computer equipment. All that sort of comes before the, the cash comes into the business. And that's, that's the trick in expansion, in expansion financing. So. Questions about that? Yeah. Yeah, I like to know why does it mean that uh, it's easier from your uh, perspective, it's easier to start up to make money than from expansion uh, venture? Because uh, I don't know, I just don't like to do it. Uh, if you have 
And uh, for all that, because these are these are all ways that they they mitigate or or, or control risk, they've got a pretty low capped financial return. They're taking pretty low risk comparatively. Um, of course, this isn't always true of our of our credit institutions, but um, but in general or traditionally, um, they have taken pretty low risk and and um, and so get a fairly low return. Traditional equity, on the other hand, um, is more of a long-term investment that um, doesn't really prescribe as much how you're going to use how you're going to use the capital. But the idea is to is to facilitate growth, is to help the, is to help the company grow. Um, usually, the person who provides equity is more of an owner or a partner. They're in the business with you. They might serve on the board. They uh, want to in touch with you a lot, they're going to be sending you ideas, they're going to be helping you build your management team. They're much more hands-on than a lender would be. It's typically flexible and tailored kind of financing. Uh, it takes a long time to put together an equity transaction. Um, it's usually uncollateralized. So if you if you the business doesn't do well, you, you can lose all your money and not even not have any way to really get, get that back. Um, lots of management you also provide sector support, business building expertise. Catherine Burke, who will be here next week, I guess, um, specializes in uh, life sciences, I think. So she, she knows a lot about the life science industry. So typically, equity folks are have some strong expertise in some area that they're <coughs> helping with company, and they expect to do that. And your return is linked to success. So you're going to have... Um, and there's an exit. You, you want to get your money out at a certain point, and we'll just say that's five to seven years if you're a venture capital investor. Uh, can be longer than that, but usually that's uh, about as far as they want to go. And you have the way that you're going to get your money back is not from repayment of cash flows, but through the growth of the entity. Um, so you're, you don't make money if you're an equity investor unless the company that you're investing in grows. And um, you're going to get your money out through an exit, either if that company is sold or if it goes public and it is able to sell its shares on a much broader market, so you can sell your shares and get out. Um, but there's some defined exit event there. And because you're taking much more risk here, you have a much higher return. It's not capped. It's uh, hopefully as high as it could possibly be. Venture um, capital funds typically want to make five to ten times or more of their money on their investments in, in five years, so it's pretty, pretty high rate of return. Yeah. Uh, Mark, do you have any examples of um, investments that you made in the past where you got a five to ten times return and how long it took? I don't have any. But, <laughs> <laughs> no. um, but one of the, uh, and actually this is it's sort of a social venture in some ways. It was a, it's a majority-owned call center called Ryla Teleservices. And um, at a time when the, all the call centers in the United States were going offshore and setting up operations in the Philippines, they wanted to set up a, a non-shore call center um, that would do right by the folks who worked there. That would be, be a good job, be a job you wanted to have. Anybody worked at a call center or know anything about a call center working conditions? Yeah, what, how, how would you describe the typical call center job? Um, Thank you, and um, well, what specifically about it? Just 
Is it exciting and fun? You get to interact with <laughs> um, coworkers. And no, you're kind of you? no on the phone talking to angry customers or upset customers. Often you feel like a psychologist or something, kind of just calming people down. And yeah. <laughs> um, it's pretty tiring. It's awesome. Yeah. How long did you do it? Um, six months. Yeah, that's a pretty long time in the call center industry. So, um, so Rila Teleservices wanted to have the job that you had at Rila be the best job you ever had, which is very different from what you're from what you're describing. And so they, the owners of that business, were a husband and wife who set out to create a call center that would do right by do right by its, its people. And um, it was really hard, tough going for a while, but they had a really long term vision for that. And the company has grown from, it's 21 employees when we invested in 2001, this is with SJF Ventures. They have over 400 employees now. Um, they just got a $20 million contract with a major telecommunications provider. Um, our investment, I don't remember all the numbers, but we got, we, our investment was, um, for the most part, we bought out, we, we invested $700,000. In 2002 and in 2007, um, another venture capital fund came in and which is sort of another exit, um, put six and a half million dollars into the business because it had, it had grown well. We were able to take a million and a half out of the business and retain some stake and then we took another 500,000. So it's a, it's a 3x return, a three times return, but um, only because the company had grown in terms of in terms of revenue and in terms of its, its mission. And I would argue because, in this instance, in social venture, because it had this explicit, this explicit model of trying to um, do right by its employees. So we helped them do things like set up an employee stock option plan so they could, so if you're a call center operator, you had a statement that gave you an incentive to stick around longer. Um, and they did all kinds, they had um, paid health insurance for employees, which was really unusual. In the, Call center industry. So um, it was a good fit with SJF Ventures, which is a mission driven investor, uh, because of that commitment by the way. So, but I, I, I don't have any uh, five or ten times. <laughs> so, um, so this is sort of this is a very, very busy chart, and we're, we're going to go over it line by line. Um, but the basic idea here is that if you're a social venture and you're looking to expand, um, you've got sort of three, really three choices. You can either get contributed capital, you can get equity and equity-like investments, and you can get, or you can get debt capital. And this, this goes from left to right, goes from total risk, which is what a, a charitable contribution would be. You don't expect to get any of your money back, you're taking a total risk on a, on a, on a nonprofit organization typically, um, over to the right to a debt to a debt instrument, which would have lower lower risk. And somewhere in the middle, you've got equity and equity-like investments, which are pretty risky, but not as risky as just giving giving the money to an organization and, and saying, tell us how you do in, in a year. So um, what, we're, what we're seeing in this, um, kind of in this middle section, is a lot of um, interesting organizations that are trying to, in a sense, mix uh, Debt and equity. Um, I've gotten a little bit ahead of myself here, um, because uh, if you have a, if you're in a nonprofit structure, the sources that you've got for expansion financing are um, 
really grants him debt. You can't access traditional equity markets if you're a nonprofit. Why is that? Why can't you? Why why can't you have equity in a in a nonprofit organization? It's an online bookseller. 
and make books available to literacy <coughs> programs across the uh, really all around the world. A good capital put two and a half million dollars into um, Better World Books. Um, they did it as a Series A preferred investment, which is a pretty typical, pretty standard venture capital kind of investment. They did it alongside 18 other individuals who put another two million dollars. It's a pretty big, pretty big transaction. This is four and a half million dollars going into a into the social venture, one of the bigger investments um, that we've seen. And they, uh, good capital, wanted to make sure that there was a way to maintain the mission of the organization, to make sure that the partners, which are nonprofit literacy organizations, had a stake in the organization, kind of like we were talking about with um, call center operators at, at Rila. They wanted to make sure that those literacy organizations were, were bought into um, Federal World Books mission. So they took 5% of the stock in this for-profit company and gave it to um, four of the key nonprofit partners for the company. That's a very unusual thing to do. Um, usually venture capital funds and, man and management, um, they want to get every possible share or percentage of, of ownership they can. And here's a, here's a fund that's explicitly saying we want you to, to build ownership for your partners. That's a, that's a very unusual um, approach and something I think we'll see, we'll see more of as there are more companies like, like this on the for-profit side. Um, any questions about, about that? Um, venture capital adaptation? Yeah? Are there, are there a number of innovative financing options coming up now? Are they, you know, like Acumen Fund came up with this mix of equity and debt? mentioning just 5%. Um, are they the only two? Has anyone done any research on the various types? No, that, that um, this is a bigger list than it was a year ago. Um, a year ago, I would have had good capital in there. Um, equilibrium and recycle are, are relatively good. Ecumen's been around for a while and doing really interesting investments in the developing world for the most part. Um, but what what's interesting about um, the groups that have been doing uh, sort of the furthest out on the on the scale, if you will, doing um, social ventures, they have a very very strong mission. May not be as strong on the on the financial side. Is that most of their investors are are charitable organizations? They're not profit seeking pension funds or endowments. So it's not Duke Endowment that is investing in them. It's it's a foundation. They're interested in seeing the charitable benefit in India when everyone's coming, for example. So. Um, Good capital, natural capital investment fund, the fund that I work with, um, I think Ianco as well, are examples of funds that have charitable <coughs> charitable investors. And that makes a big difference in the kind of return that you have to try to get out of your investment in a social venture. And it allows um, these organizations, which I would call social capital or patient capital, to um, have a little bit longer length of time that they'll leave an investment in. Um, they're, they're trying to get a little bit lower rate of return, maybe 8 to 20% instead of 30% plus. Um, they are uh, have a different view of exit as well. So one of the things that's really problematic for social ventures is if you are an entrepreneur and you work day in and day out for 10 years, you get, you get tired, you're ready to do something else, you're, you're exhausted. And if you're running a social venture, um, how do you how do you get out? How do you sell your company, um, or how do you 
uh, transition the ownership of that of that company, but be sure the permission that you started out with uh, in your business uh, goes on. It's it's really tricky. And so this whole question of um, how you get out, what the exit strategy is for a social capital and patient capital fund is really is really different. Um, can any of you think of an example of a company that is sort of a social venture that has that, that was sold and um, has kind of struggled to just find its footing and to keep its mission alive? Come to Ben and Jerry's. Yeah, Ben and Jerry's is a great example. So, what's what was that story? Uh, so, Ben and Jerry's was an ice cream company founded by a couple of guys with a very strong social mission that was sold to Hagen Dazs. Um, and, and the there's certainly a belief um, almost immediately the the structure of executive compensation changed, um, and a lot of different things changed in the way that. Uh, people who believe in wish and bed and dairies felt undermine the, the social aspect of the social venture. Yeah, so Unilever had a different corporate approach than, than Ben and Jerry did. So um, that was a that was a, a real change. And lots of people who love Ben and Jerry's, um, despite the fat content, um, you know, really felt betrayed when this when this happened. How could they sell out? How could they do that? And Ben and Jerry have Taken a lot of their their earnings and put in, put in the foundations, and they continue to do good work. But the company has really has changed, as you're, as you're suggesting. Any others? Yeah. Matt even mentioned Ben and Jerry's. I don't know how it's played out, but right here in Durham, the uh, Burst Beeswax bought by Clorox. I don't know. Have they? Has that changed at all? I don't know. Anybody know? Anybody worked at Burst Beeswax? Oh, I know John. John Reploro, the CEO, we him speak, and um, he's actually going to Clorox a lot now, trying to bring some of the work that is done with Inverse Bees to Clorox and trying to help bring Clorox credit. We hired an outstanding woman, Yola Carvel, who's their sustainability director, actually came from the Nigeria. So they're, they're actually growing their sustainability kind of focus, and they're trying to affect the larger Clorox. And yeah, I get the, the I get the sense at least I don't I don't know a lot about Clorox, but the Clorox is really serious about Clorox has sort of an image problem in this in this day and age, right? I mean it's bleach and you know, it's just not it's not good stuff for the environment. So I think they really want to make they want to make a switch, and so the purchase of of Hertz Bees may be a way to bring in um, people who have got real expertise in that field to really get it, and then maybe they can make make the whole. Corporation change, maybe they can't. We'll see. But that, maybe that's, a, that's a good example. Yeah. No, no. We have this case of Crossfit and, and Clorox being marketing shortly like two or three weeks ago. Uh -huh. And <coughs> the other reason that they sold Clorox was one of the conditions that they were going to respect their information and their values. Good. So I don't know how, how much they stick to it, but that's what Yeah. Yeah, so it'll be really, it'll be just interesting to see. But it's a big, it's a, it's a big issue, and this whole issue of exit and how you how you get out and how you keep um, keep the mission alive uh, really calls for that, the kind of structure that, that good capital is doing. Here's another um, example of a structure. This is one uh, NCIF um, structure that might work for nonprofits. Um, this was actually a for-profit in investment that we made in a uh, wood pellet manufacturer in Western North Carolina, but. But I think it's the kind of structure that could work for a nonprofit as well. So this was a um, 
a subordinated loan, which is just a fancy name for a, a loan that has very little chance of ever getting repaid if the company doesn't do well. Um, so it's, it's underneath the, the senior lenders, uh, doesn't have immediate access to the, the assets if the company goes under. Um, and it had an interest rate of 8%. What we did to help the company grow was to defer principal payments for a year. So it gives them some time to expand, gives them some time to grow before they have to, well, they have to amortize the whole loan. And then it's amortized over four years. And then what we what we build into um, it as well in terms of special provisions. To, this is a very very risky loan. This is a this is a startup essentially. So we felt um, for that kind of risk, we wanted to have some way of of having an uncapped return. Um, but the owner was very very clear uh, that he did not want to share any ownership with anybody. And uh, so that was sort of off the table. So how could we get it, get more of an uncapped return or have an opportunity to, to share in the company's growth. We did um, a couple of things. We put in a balloon payment at the end of five years, which is just a big, big chunk of money, um, that would boost our return from 8% to 10%. That would be the sort of the effective um, impact of that additional payment. And then we had what's called a revenue royalty. So if the company is doing extremely well, <coughs> We um, actually, and I think the, the, the threshold would be about $7 million. If they got from zero where they are now to $7 million uh, per year in terms of revenue, then it would be worth our while to, um, to have a revenue royalty that would be 2% of, of their revenues for the last year um, before this, the loan was paid off. So that's a way, um, that's a way to take a, take a piece of the upside of a, of a or a company without taking, a, without taking a, an ownership position. And that's, that's the kind of structure that might work for, for a nonprofit. Um, but you have to be very careful because one of the things that, because a nonprofit is set up for the charitable good, for the public's good, um, the way this stuff gets structured for nonprofits is very important. You have to avoid what's called private endurement. So you don't want to have a situation where Somebody sort of takes advantage of the nonprofit status to make a lot of money. So that's a that's an issue that has to be crossed in, in those that kind of situation. So, but this I think is what what you might see a lot more of are these sort of um, zero coupon bonds where you've got a you've got a bond that um, you don't have to pay any interest on for five years, but it, it accumulates uh, revenue royalty kinds of agreements. Those kinds of things will uh, we'll see more and more of that for, for nonprofits. And if you're um, if you're a for-profit um, social venture, you've got you know you're you're going to have more and more opportunities to to work with uh, with funds that um, take your mission seriously. And equilibrium and new cycle are both were both started by really traditional venture capitalists who kind of got religion. They saw companies that, that worked extremely well because they had a strong mission and they wanted to try that. So they stepped out of their venture capital seats and decide to start something new. So I think we'll, we'll be seeing more of that. Um, another option for nonprofits um, is sort of a capital campaign that doesn't, um, isn't about bricks and mortar. It's not about building more buildings on the Duke campus. It's about raising growth capital for a nonprofit so that it can, it can fulfill its mission. 
So at Transfer, which is a certifying agency, we're looking at doing a capital campaign to raise $20 million that will allow Transfer to work not just with coffee and chocolate and uh, bananas and fruit and rice, but with garments and diamonds and all kinds of all kinds of uh, more sophisticated supply chains, um, all kinds of more sophisticated products that take that, that need more people and new branches of business within the nonprofit. So um, that kind of capital campaign um, is a uh, is something that NFF Capital Partners is doing, and, and you'll see other organizations doing that as well. So. Um, Just to sum up, I think um, if you want to start a, a social venture, or if you're you're in the process of doing that, if you want to be a uh, social venture entrepreneur, social venturist, um, I think the first thing to do is to really know what your DNA is. And if your if your DNA, if what really drives you is um, making profit, and you can't really you don't, you don't really have something else that's driving you that would be more of a societal good, then you may not be a social venture, and you may not want to go out and, and pitch yourself as a social venture. I think one of the things that, that um, was a, a red flag, and still is a red flag for me as an investor, is when someone comes in and says, I've got this, business, I've got this social venture and I want to make, I'm really concerned about the polar ice caps melting, about polar bears, and I want to make the world a better place, and Here's my here's my business, and then there's never any connection with the, the polar bears or the ice caps. It's all about making a lot of making a lot of money. I'll, if I make a lot of money, then I'll then I'll give it away later on. So that I don't think that's really a social venture. So that kind of um, not to not to denigrate polar bears and the polar ice caps because we all need to be worrying about them. But in terms of what you focus on as an entrepreneur, there should be some connection with with what you what you do. Um, one of the rules about about entrepreneurship is it always uh, takes longer and it costs more than you think it's going to. So you have to be really realistic about what your capital needs are. There is a um, company called um, Pura Vida Coffee that, that got started um, I guess in uh, 2001 and raised money in a, in a debt offering, in a bond offering, they raised a million, million $800,000. Um, they were a fair trade coffee company, and uh, they thought for sure that they were that was going to be all the money they would need. So they they set up this very elaborate um, bond structure where the bondholders would get three percent on their on their bonds until the company hit a certain revenue threshold. And once it was all paid back, then the bond would convert to um, they get warrants for sixty percent of the company. And they would have to use any dividends from the stock that they got um, through that whole thing to a nonprofit um, organization of their choice that they would they would designate. So it was this very complicated, very um, wanting to retain as much as possible for the um, for the mission of the organization, but they needed more money. And so what happened was all those those bond investors, the the entrepreneur John Sage, had to go back to them, sort of hat in hand, and say, I need you to go from owning 60% of this company to owning 12% of this company. And um, then there's going to be another layer of stock on top of you. And he ended up having to raise over $6 million. And, and so being realistic about the money that um, you're going to need to run your organization 
um, is really it's really important because it should drive how you how you set up your structure from the beginning. One of the other things that was true about John Sage was that he was a um, he was a he worked for Microsoft, so he was sort of a software millionaire. He really had never worked in the coffee industry, and the coffee industry is a, is a tough industry. It's got very small, very small margins. Um, it's very, uh, not very uh, easy to, to, to grow in the coffee industry because the, if you have a, you sell coffee like Puerto Vida coffee, you um, typically what you do is you buy the coffee dispensers for your customers. And they, this was a group that went after churches because the churches would really respond to the, their mission, which was to provide um, help for um, a uh, Christian organization that worked in, in Costa Rica with disadvantaged youth. So uh, churches were a very logical sort of uh, market for them, but they had to go out and buy urns and coffee brewers and all this kind of stuff for, for churches. And then they got, then it sort of took off and ended up with over 160 colleges and universities wanting to sell Puerto Vida coffee in their, in their shops. And so then, then they really had, sort of had a tiger by the tail, needed to raise more money. Um, but are still at this you know, five or six years after getting started are still not not profitable. So not only are they not not making it kind of on the for, on the profit side, they also aren't sending any money to the to the ministry in, in Costa Rica that they wanted to do. So um, knowing knowing the industry and the market is really important. Um, so sort of start with the end in mind. Think about where you want to be and make sure that you're. Uh, your structure, whether it's nonprofit, or for profit, or um, debt, or equity, it's gonna it's gonna work as you go down the road. Remembering that you're always gonna need more than you think, and it's gonna take longer for you to get there than you. Than you. And um, so finally, just you know, choose choose the structure that's gonna best fit with your. Um, it's gonna allow you to raise the capital that you need. Um, I think more and more people in the social venture field are really questioning the decision to, to start a social venture as a nonprofit. Because um, you really you, you cut yourself out of access to a lot of, um, a lot of sources of expansion capital. There's a much more uh, defined and efficient market for expansion capital on the for-profit side than there is on the nonprofit side. And we're seeing in that middle section, we're seeing some, some changes there, but people are really asking the question, and why would you, why why start as a, it's okay to be a for profit it's okay to be a for profit that's got a mission we've got some examples of that of that now so um, those are that's that's what I had and I'd be happy to take questions if we have time for a couple of questions, couple questions. yeah I missed some of the detail when we talked about your relationship with NCIF I, uh, so so kind of a two part question one is did the entrepreneur try to negotiate some of what the, the contract would be with the loan? And if, and if he did, or she did, um, how does she do that in a relationship reserving way? And what leverage did she have to negotiate that? Good question. Yeah. And it, it really was a sort of, it was like a, a venture capital negotiation. Um, he said, uh, you'd like to have an opportunity to, um, you know, to be a part of the upside of your organization. And he said, no way. <laughs> So it was a pretty short, it was a short negotiation. So, so then we went back to the drawing board and sort of tried to figure out other ways to do it. Um, I think we had had a lot of, lot of value to the transaction because he needed, 
um, traditional debt, and it's a new industry. Lenders tend to be very hesitant about investing in something that they can't go out and kick the tires on. And so we were willing to put our money in early, and that allowed the bank to come in. And so he, he really needed us to um, to make the to make the financing work overall. So he was willing to give up some of the to have a pretty high, fairly high interest rate for a loan. He could probably have gotten a lower rate somewhere else, but he couldn't have gotten the money as early as we were. But it is about it is about a relationship, and I think it's a, that's a that's a really good point. You have to um, if you're Starting a uh, social venture, you've got to be, you've got to have uh, not only have the mission, but you've got to have either you or somebody on your team has got to be willing to, to negotiate and negotiate hard to protect the interests of your, of your organizations and somehow maintain the relationship with, um, with, with the funder because they're going to be a partner. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the example of uh, the guy talking about polar bears and uh, ice caps. Um, how do you make sure once someone has received capital that they're actually using it for their mission? How do you measure that social gain versus what's in their bottom line? There are um, people have been trying to do that really for the last ten or fifteen years, and there are lots of um, there are a lot. Jed Emerson has created something called the Social Return on Investment, sort of blended value, which tries to look at um, financial return mixed in with social return. Academic has a really neat um, way of measuring social return where they look at the, the alternative to, um, say, an ambulance company in Mumbai that provides services to the poor. They, they look at what would the cost be for a poor person um, to get to the hospital if they didn't have this ambulance service. And that cost turns out to be much higher than what it would cost the symptom to use this 12 minute So. Um, which I think is a really nice kind of elegant way to, to measure it and easier than a blended return. So um, you know, once you, you have the most leverage as a as a funder before you write a check to the to the organization or the company, and um, a lot of it is just trusting or not trusting that the entrepreneur is serious about the mission. And kind of back to this um, this point, um, chances are they're going to need more money. So uh, if you have more money to give, then you still have some leverage over them if they, if they have sat in this audience and know that they're going to need them. But if they don't think they're going to need more money, then they, they may be more difficult for them to work with them. So it's a, it's a, it's a tricky thing. Okay. Um, I think we're going to stop here for a second. We can have more questions and stuff after 8 o'clock. I just want to try to end on time here. Yep. So we can just give Rick a hand. If you're from other schools, Nicholas, engineering, graduate, undergraduate, uh, please help us promote the next event. Come up front and get some flyers. Uh, it's Venture Capital 102. Uh, we're going to have an open bar afterwards, so it'll be a lot of fun to network with a lot of VCs and other people. Um, in addition, we really encourage you to use uh, the Facebook group to get involved with the Startup Challenge. Um, we'll have more information on the Startup Challenge in the next few weeks as they come along. And uh, we also want to uh, let Matt uh, Nash get up here and talk about Case for a few seconds. Case for yeah, 60 seconds, actually. One, it was our pleasure to work with EBCC to bring Rick in. We, when we thought of who do we bring in and talk about financing social ventures, we knew Rick was the exact right person here to have here tonight. So again, I want to thank Rick for making time to come join us tonight. So thank you, Rick.
things. One, if you're interested in the Ben and Jerry's case, we're actually going to feature that uh, during one of the sessions of Paul Bloom's corporate social impact management classes in the spring, that's spring two. Non-FIPA students can take that. It's the second half of the spring semester called Corporate Social Impact Management. Yola is going to come in and talk about the work they've been doing. Second, if you're interested in social entrepreneurship, don't forget that during Entrepreneurship Week here at Duke, on the 19th, which is the Wednesday, we've got three panels on social entrepreneurship. One on social entrepreneurship in global health, one on social entrepreneurship in the field of education, and one on sustainable entrepreneurship. That's Wednesday the 19th. Some great panels organized for you. And the last thing, if you're a FUQA student, raise your hand for a second so I get sense. Okay. For the FUQA students, if you actually want to work with a social venture, I encourage you to come out tomorrow to the Global Opportunities Fair or on Monday, information sessions at 12.30 and 6.30. We've got 12 social ventures we're going to work with, three in India, three or four in India, three or four in South Africa, three or four in Nicaragua. Amazing things from microfinance, renewable energy, education, youth development, street workers, health, 12 great potential projects, and we just need to fill up teams to actually go out there and work with them over spring break and for about 10, 12 weeks before, and about three or four weeks after. Come on out to Global Opportunities Fair tomorrow and on Monday. Or if you can't make either, shoot the case an email, we'll um, give you the details on that. It's a great opportunity to work with social entrepreneurs. So that's it. Thanks a lot. Appreciate Thanks, it. everybody.